when I finished the ride to conquer cancer in uh, 2018, I had an arthritis flare up. So with the Crohn's, it can trigger other sort of immune issues that you can get. Uh, so I had a Crohn's induced, possibly drug induced lupus, which just showed up as rheumatoid arthritis almost in all of my joints. So I couldn't walk very well. I couldn't dress myself. Like I could barely move. My hands and my, my knuckles were all double the size. It essentially felt like I had sprained every joint in my body. Bianca Hayes is a force. This summer, she biked from Vancouver to Halifax in 19 days and 18 hours. Bianca Hayes was never an avid cyclist. Her inspiration to ride came from the aspiration to raise money and awareness for ovarian cancer. Welcome to The Safe Haven, a space for stories to be shared about the lights and darks, highs and lows of life. Bianca's sister Katrina died in 2018 from ovarian cancer, which is the fifth most common cancer and most deadly of all women's cancers. August 2018 was the first real serious bike ride that Bianca had ever been on using a borrowed bike. Two years later, with training, sponsorship, and a real trainer, Bianca set out to bike across Canada and is now the fastest woman ever to complete the ride. In this episode, Bianca shares the story of Katrina's diagnosis with ovarian cancer and her experience being Katrina's sister. She also shares the inspiration and the steps that led to her committing to the big ride across the country. We start with Bianca introducing herself and giving us a couple Coles notes before we jump in. My name is Bianca Hayes, and I recently rode across Canada to raise money for ovarian cancer. Um, I was able to do 6,000 kilometers over uh, 19 days and 18 hours, which made me the fastest woman to ride across Canada. So that was very exciting. I started on uh, June 16th, and I finished on July, I believe July 4th. I should really know that. Um, <laughs> I just know that you got back into, didn't you get back into van on the 8th? I really don't know what dates it was. I bet it was such a blur. <laughs> oh my That's gosh. Super that I don't know how long it was. Uh, yeah, I know how long it took me, but I don't remember the day that we ended, the actual date. I can mm. check. I'll send you afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Or night, 20 days after. Yeah, because I was riding on the 1st of July. We were in Quebec. So it might have been around like the fourth or fifth that we finished. It was one of okay. something around there, I want to say. It was all a blur. <laughs> yeah, I bet it was. How does it feel to know that you hold a record as the fastest woman to bike across Canada? It's cool, but it's interesting because uh, so I did a, a bike ride last year as well. Um, I rode from Vancouver to San Francisco in like nine and a half days. Uh, and it was also to raise money for ovarian cancer. And the interesting thing uh, doing stuff like this is like going into it, you sort of, you mentally prepare for for getting ready for the whole challenge and the physical challenge of everything. And and sort of the end goal is is what you're thinking about while you're training. But it's really like the training that sort of changes how you think about things, if that makes sense. Like the actual physical event, you get to the end and you're sort of expecting this big like, rush of emotion and this big feeling and you finish and then you're just kind of like, oh, okay, I'm done. So 
I guess I just go now. Like, like you don't really, it doesn't, it doesn't have as much of a, a life changing or like a, how you think about yourself doesn't really change that much, which is, which is weird. And, uh, it's actually something that, that really affected me last year because you sort of go into it and I was like, okay, I'll get this thing done. Um, I, I struggled in my past with, with like addiction and, um, and depression and, and dealing with just feeling like I, I hated myself and I, and I was always, I've always been really, really hard on myself, which I think we're all our, our own worst critics, but you know, I, I was hoping that finishing that ride to San Francisco, I was like, I'll finally feel like I'm worth something and I'll be so proud of myself afterwards. And then I finished and you don't, you don't really change, right? Like you're still the same person that you were when you went into it. And that was, it was mentally one of the the harder things I had to deal with. It was harder than the entire bike ride of just getting back and then just being like, it's still me in my head. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't change. Mm-hmm. I don't walk around all day thinking like, I'm the fastest woman to bike across Canada. Like, this is awesome. You sort of ride on, on a bit of a high, like when you, when you see people who, who sort of bring it up and then you sort of remember and you're like, yeah, I I did do that. Mm -hmm. It was cool. But it's, it's very weird that it, yeah, you never really, the you inside you never really changes. Mm -hmm. So like walking around every day, like when I'm talking to people, I'm really proud of it. But, but like average day to day, I, I just don't think about it anymore. And I wish I could say that you can you can do something like that and then really change how you feel about yourself. But that was it's always been one of the the harder things that I struggled with and something I really prepared for this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, it was really cool. Like it was the whole experience sort of leading up to it, seeing all the donations come in and seeing that we were having the impact that I really wanted. You know, being able to raise more awareness for ovarian cancer that was really the the part that that really made me feel really proud. The having a, a title and, and being the fastest woman was like, okay, that's cool. But that part fades so quickly that it's having something like the, like raising the money for ovarian cancer and having something re- really tangible like that, that really made it just feel that much more mm-hmm. just real, right? Like yeah. just something that I could hold on to and be like, no, like I, I, I did that for sure. But my, my purpose for doing all of it was to raise money and was to raise this awareness. Like it just, and having that impact and seeing that people were responding to it so much and donating and, and sharing these things. That's really what, what made me feel so much just pride and, and confidence leaving it. It wasn't really the, the accomplishment of, of finishing the physical goal. It, that was very, that was good, but it, it was gone within pretty much seconds of completing. Mm-hmm. I sort of looked at Alan and I was like, so do we get to go to bed now? And can I sleep for more than three hours? <laughs> Honestly, I know. I, yeah. And I want to get into all of this. I think for context and for the listeners, we got to back up. Let's go back to why ovarian cancer? So uh, back in 2018, in, in April of 2018, my sister Katrina, uh, she was 32 at the time. Uh, she died of ovarian cancer. She had only been diagnosed just over a year before. So it it was so aggressive. It was so quick. Um, it started off sort of before it was diagnosed as cancer. They, they thought she had a cyst on her ovary. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, they scheduled her for surgery. They said it would need to be removed. But, you know, because they're thinking it's a benign cyst, they're not in a huge rush. She ended up having to be taken to the hospital via an ambulance because it had grown so quickly that it held so much weight on the ovary that it turned down and it twisted her fallopian tube. So she woke up in the middle of the night in excruciating pain, got rushed to the hospital 
And then she waited for over 24 hours there for, for emergency surgery because, you know, they're the only trauma response hospital in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So there was a, I think there was a big car crash. There were a few people that were really injured and they needed the operating room. So she kept getting bumped. I spent, uh, I, it was when I used to work at a, uh, at a restaurant. So I would work really late. So I went to after work around like one o'clock in the morning and, uh, and I sat with her in the hospital room and, and she was just, she was on so many pain meds and just in so much pain and she was sort of in and out of it. And when she finally got surgery, the cyst that they thought it was had burst. So it ended up being so much more serious, the, the surgery to get it all dealt with. And when they finally did a test on it, they figured out it was cancerous. So it was pretty much immediately into treatment and chemotherapy. And we found out, started finding out then just how aggressive and how awful ovarian cancer is. So it's the fifth most common, but most deadly of all women's cancers. The survival rates haven't changed in 50 years and it just doesn't get as much attention as, as a bunch of other sort of cancers out there. There's no screening test, so your pap smears don't detect it. And it's just something that a lot of women, like, I, I had no idea mm-hmm. until she died. And watching how aggressively it came on over the course of that, that year and a half was just, it was shocking. Like, she went through the year of treatment and, um, and then, uh, like, had Christmas with us. We had New Year's. And then in, in January of of the new year of 2018, she went into the hospital and she never came home. So she was in the hospital for four months at the cancer center. They thought she might be able to get stronger, get another round of chemotherapy and the strength and resilience that she had, like seeing that firsthand of just, I'm going to survive. I'm going to get stronger. I'm going to get this treatment. I'm going to get better. And it, it just ravaged her body. Like by the end, and this is something that is common with, with the kind of ovarian cancer she had, it looked like she was pregnant. Oh my gosh. That's how big the tumor got. And it's just something like, just so horrific because you're sitting there and, you know, we hear about cancer and, and you think about it as sort of like a, an invisible killer of people, right? Like, you know, that it's inside somebody's body and you know that they're battling it and they're getting chemotherapy, but you never really physically see it Mm -hmm. unless it's like a skin cancer, like a melanoma or something. But seeing it physically grow inside of her abdomen, we have an x-ray that just literally shows that it's taking up her entire abdominal cavity. Like, it was just one of the most horrific things I've ever seen because you're just sitting there. She was given a terminal diagnosis in February. So she had, they gave her weeks to live. She ended up surviving for another two months. And just watching that sort of slowly grow and take over her body. And you're just like, it's just this alien thing killing you and we all know it's killing you but you know we were it's all of her family we were there every day we're all sitting with her and you're just sort of like just don't we're just not talking about it we're not addressing the elephant in the room of that thing is growing inside of you and taking over your body and it's going to kill you Mm -hmm. and it was just such a it was such a fucked up four months of just like back and forth sort of living sort of working and then being at the hospital half the time and yeah, it was, it was one of the most horrific things I've ever seen. And uh, eventually, so they, they kept saying, you know, these are all the potential organ systems it can affect, mm-hmm. uh, like your kidneys, your bowel, all of these different things. So they, uh, the surgical team at BGH obviously just wants to cut you open and give you surgical options. They had already told her that she was terminal, and one of the surgery teams gave her this sort of false hope of, Mm -hmm. well, we can put 
sort of like these stints in and have your kidneys drain directly out of your body into these bags. That might help do that just in case the tumor goes there. We can take, give you an ostomy bag so that, you know, your, your bowel is coming out of your body mm-hmm. at that point. And all of these things they're, they're offering her and she's willing to do it because her mind is going, that means I will survive longer. Mm-hmm. And it finally took my dad stepping up in a room with all of us in there in front of her having to go, is this going to extend her life at all? And then having to sheepishly just tell us, no, it's not, you know, these are just other options that we're giving you. And it's like, it's, it's not an option. These are uncomfortable, horrific surgeries that are going to make the last two months of her life worse. And they're not even going to extend it. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it was sort of insult to injury with a lot of things. There's a lot of sort of ups and downs as you're dealing with stuff like that in a hospital with a terminal patient. And we were sort of at the receiving end of some, some pretty awful things. <sighs> yeah, it was, mm-hmm. it was a, the, the worst time in, in, in my life. How did your family maintain a really positive environment in that hospital room as she was dying? she wouldn't have it any other way. Mm-hmm. It's one thing that we actually sort of found out with um, the the social worker that was there that was sort of supporting us and, and there to help if we needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that she said was that younger patients really don't talk about it a lot. They don't mm-hmm. want to talk about death. They don't want to address it. They don't want to sort of feel like they're dying. So it's it's a lot about just living in the moment, just sort of being there with her. And, you know, it, it was her life, it's her death, and we were willing to do whatever she wanted. And what she wanted was just, she wanted us to be there, she wanted to spend time with us, she wanted to see her, so she has a, he's five now, uh, but she has a son, he was three years old at the time. So she had uh, Matt, my brother-in-law, he was there every day, like she got to see Calvin, as long as she had, Calvin is her son, Matt, sorry, is her, uh, was her husband. Um, and so they were there every day as, as long as Katrina had energy and could see him, she'd read to him. And we, we have some great videos of her reading him some stories. And, you know, we got takeout from all of her favorite restaurants. We, we would ha- had a couple movie nights with her. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, it's not normal. You're sort of sitting in a hospital room and it was me and my mom, my dad lives in Australia. He had flown over as well. Um, you know, my brother-in-law and Calvin, and we're all just sort of, you're just sort of sitting there mm-hmm. and trying to have these normal conversations. And it was, it was really tough. My mom was there all day, every day. She went there in the morning. She brought her food. She cooked for her, you know, hospital food is notoriously awful. Yeah, so it's so bad. We sort of ran through the, the list of all my sister's favorite meals and my mom would go home and cook and then bring it back and sit with her. And yeah, it's just, it was just making sure we were there as much as we could be. And my bosses were, were really understanding about that too. So I would do, I was working half days for four months at a company I'd only been at for not even three months at the time. And it was just sort of like, I'm really sorry, but my sister's dying. And they just said, just go do whatever you need to. We'll figure it all out afterwards, which was amazing. Cause I, yeah, I, I can't imagine what I would have been like if I was trying to work full time and and go there but yeah that was uh they were so understanding about it and you know we just received so much support from from everyone around and you know people just they just want to help 
Mm-hmm. But it's it's one of the sad things about sort of society and and the way that we are right now. A lot of people don't, you know, they're really uncomfortable about death. Mm-hmm. And and it's hard to talk to a lot of people about it because most people have never lost somebody, especially that young. And so when you start sort of even just calmly, rationally talking about it, they just sort of shut down and they, they just don't know how to speak to you about That's it, right? right? Yeah, it's a scary thing for so many of us, right? To talk about. Yeah, and it, and it addresses your own mortality at the yes. end of it, right? You can't look at something like that or see something like that without starting to think about yourself dying as well, mm-hmm. which it's just, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I totally get it. But yeah, you do have a lot of people who you're either the person that they then walk up to and talk to about anybody that's died in their life for the next little while or or they, they sort of avoid you for the next little bit. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, I had I had mostly supportive, really awesome friends. So Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Oh, my heart aches that I can't even place myself in that situation. I I can't imagine I've got one sister and you're essentially grieving while she's still alive. Yeah. With that prognosis. Yeah. And, and like, even before, like when she had just gotten diagnosed, you know, you're because ovarian cancer has so many awful statistics around it because it just hasn't had the funding to do the research that's necessary in order to really change some of the the horrible statistics. You feel like you're doing her a disservice. You know what I mean? Like looking up all of the horrible, what if sort of statistics of like, what are the survival rates? Like, what is the recurrence rate of this? How likely is she to survive it? Because she had stromal ovarian cancer, which is a more rare and really aggressive one on top of everything else. And, um, and you know, it, it just felt like I was, like I didn't believe in her almost in some very weird way when I was trying to just educate myself on it. It was just something in the back of my mind that was like, just don't look at it. Don't think about it. You know, we can, we can learn about ovarian cancer when this is all over, right? Like she's going to beat it. She's young, she's healthy. And yeah, it was, uh, it was awful. And then it was, so we had, uh, my family isn't religious. So we had a celebrant hold the memorial for her, a celebration of life. And she was conducting the ceremony. And one of the things at the end was she was mentioning some statistics about ovarian cancer. And that was sort of, that was really the first time that I really heard all of the the terrible numbers, which was, I think it was in, yeah. So in 2018, they had 300 of the 300 women they expected to be diagnosed, 250 of those women would die. And you're just like, excuse me, Mm -hmm. what the fuck? Like, how has nothing been done? How has there not, like, who, there's no marching in the street about this? Like, that's a terrible survival rate. The survival rates for, like, prostate cancer and breast cancer used to be the same, but because of, you know, you have so many survivors that are out there sort of raising awareness and and doing an amazing job of it and fundraising that you have so many more people who are able to, to speak about it. Whereas with ovarian cancer, you have death rates that high and, you just don't have the survivors out there telling their story because half of them are still in treatment or de- dealing with recurrence or or in the middle of all of it. So it really takes sort of family and friends and other people who know about it to start raising money and, and trying to get more people involved. Mm-hmm. Were you into cycling before Katrina died? No, actually. Oh. Um, <laughs> so the company that I had started with, is uh, an A&W franchisee. So it's two brothers that I'd known from before. And so I, uh, I I was diagnosed with Crohn's in September of 2017. I got out of the hospital and I was looking for a new job and they were like, well, come work for us. It'll be great. 
So I started with them and probably within the first couple of weeks, uh, they went, so A&W has a ride to conquer cancer team. One of us or some of the family always rides. We always join it. So we have a bike and you're going to join it. And this was before they knew Katrina had cancer. And I was like, I, I, I've never really ridden for more than like maybe three blocks or around a seawall before. Mm-hmm. And I had bought a fixie maybe two years before that and maybe ridden it for the most of like 20 minutes. And so I was like, I mean, I guess so. Sure. Why not? And uh, yeah, so 2018 after Katrina died, that August was the first bike ride I'd ever done on a borrowed bike. So it was 100 kilometers a day for two days. And I could barely walk afterwards. I was, <laughs> I was so sore. I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. It's raining the whole time. I was wearing a garbage bag underneath my jersey just to stay a little bit warm and dry. Like I had no gear. I had nothing proper for it. And uh, yeah, and then I got to the end of that one. And I was like, things like this raise attention and they build awareness. And, you know, people pay attention when you're doing something ridiculous and physical and crazy that they're like, wait, you did what? Mm-hmm. And that seems to, you know, you hear about them and you see these articles of people doing this ridiculous shit and you're like, oh, okay. And they're doing it for what cause? Like, I'll donate. That's nuts. Yeah. So I finished the ride to conquer cancer in 2018 and I looked at my boyfriend picked me up and I looked at him and I was like, you know, I, I think I could do something longer. And if I do something bigger and keep training, I I can be prepared for it. I I should see how far I could get in my, you know, vacation time that I get from work in two weeks. And initially I thought about Canada, but I wasn't quite sure that my body would be able to handle it. When I finished the ride to conquer cancer in uh, 2018, I had an arthritis flare up. So with the Crohn's, it can trigger other sort of immune issues that you can get. Uh, So I had a Crohn's induced possibly drug-induced lupus, which just showed up as rheumatoid arthritis almost in all of my joints. So I couldn't walk very well. I couldn't dress myself. Like, I could barely move. My hands and my my knuckles were all double the size. It essentially felt like I had sprained every joint in my body for months as they were trying to figure it out. Because, you know, you have to go to specialists after specialists to doctors and hospitals Mm -hmm. and all over the place. And so I was really worried that maybe the bike ride had triggered that because it was only two weeks afterwards. So I was like, I should start small before I try to do something like riding across Canada and, you know, do something a little bit shorter and make sure that I don't really ruin my body. And so I started mapping out sort of how far I could get if I rode maybe 150 to 200 kilometers a day. And then I decided on San Francisco because I could ride along the coast Mm -hmm. and go by a bunch of beaches. Katrina was having a recurring dream while she was in the hospital of falling asleep on a beach, like with the sun on her face. And so I thought, you know, I could, I can spread her ashes there too. I can really sort of, you know, make it a little, a proper sort of grieving process Mm -hmm. to say goodbye to her. Um, so that was, it was beautiful. It was, it was an amazing bike ride. It was absolutely gorgeous, but that was the first really intense ride I ever did. And that was all self-trained of just sitting in a gym for as long as I possibly could on a stationary bike and lifting some weights and just hoping that I would be ready for it. So I, I love that from nothing to a goal, your goal is Canada. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you add in the arthritis and the Crohn's and all the things and a grief journey 
I'm, I'm blown away by this. I, how do you even prepare to bike across Canada? So it was, um, so I was thinking about it after that first ride. There was actually a training ride I did with, with this group of guys who's a cycling club in, in Vancouver. And one of them was the first people I sort of told that I was thinking about going across Canada. And he was like, yeah, you can totally do it. Don't worry about it. There's people, and he was telling me about this guy, Jamie McDonald, who, who raises money for sick kids. And he's set like eight Guinness World Records by like running on a treadmill for the longest time, sitting on a stationary bike. He rode from like Hong Kong to the UK or something. Like he's crazy. So he was telling me these stories and then you start going like, yeah, like other people do this shit. I'm not insane. Mm -hmm. Sure. Why not? And so it was really, I, I sort of blame it on him um, for, for pumping me up and telling me I was capable of it, even though I was struggling going up Cyprus at the time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's just sort of, baby steps, right? You just gradually build on everything. So uh, when I did the ride down to San Francisco and started planning it, I didn't have a bike. I didn't have anything. I just sort of started Googling what you need for a long bike ride. I bought a bike finally on February and just sort of, you know, you buy a bunch of tubes. You're like, okay, well, I'm going to need, I'm going to need electrolytes. I'm going to need snacks. I'm going to need place to sleep. We're going to need a car. And it was like, okay, most of these things are, are fairly easy. I can just bike as much as possible and, you know, get my body as ready as I can be. I didn't prepare for all of the mountains, though. For some reason, I just didn't clue in that there was a mountain range that I would have to cross three times. So that was a bit of a shock. Yeah. Like right off the hop, too, because you started in van. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, so down to San Francisco was crossing over that. And then I was like, okay, so doing that one was a big teaching moment of, okay, so back and forth each day, we were in Airbnbs going down to San Francisco. And I was like, that takes a lot of time because you're going from where you stop each night to your Airbnb. You're unpacking your vehicle because you can't let someone steal all your shit because then you can't keep going the next day. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, well, we need an RV that will take away having to unpack and pack up. So we're sleeping in the same thing that we're driving in. RV, RV will solve that problem. For fuel, it's just bring as much food, bring as much electrolytes, take a Gatorade, whatever you can eat, just eat everything in sight as much as possible. And then really just getting used to riding across mountains and, and doing those those giant hills. So I was training doing, um, it's called the Triple Crown. So cyclists that are in Vancouver will know it because you do uh, Cypress, Grouse and Seymour all in one day. So you ride up the roads to sort of like the base of where the ski lifts start, mm -hmm. wherever the parking lots are. So you go up to the top and then come back down and you do all three mountains in one day. It's called doing the triple crown. So I was doing that once a week before I was leaving. I also got in touch with the ovarian cancer research team at BC Cancer Foundation. And they have a, a team that does the ride to conquer cancer every year. And sort of their team captain, um, main fundraising guy was met me when I, I got to meet the research team. And she was like, I'm, I'm so excited that you're doing this. This is awesome. How can I help? And the way that he decided he would help is he paid for me to get a trainer. So I had like a real professional trainer for the last few months leading up to it, which made so much difference. Mm -hmm. My fitness changed immensely, which was huge because I also didn't have a gym to use anymore because there was a worldwide pandemic going right. on. <laughs> right. There were a lot of things that 
that really made it difficult to properly plan. We also like just getting funding for it was was incredibly difficult because everybody's going through a recession and going through such a difficult time. Um, so there's a lot of things I would do differently, but really it was just over prepare, like try to be over prepared for every little bit that I could be. We yeah. ended up throwing it all together and really deciding that we were going to go for it in about three weeks before I left. Because initially we were talking about it, I'd been planning it since the year before, but when the pandemic hit, I didn't know whether we would even be allowed to leave BC. Mm-hmm. And then sort of three weeks out, it was starting to look like most of the provinces were open. And A&W was my, my sponsor for the event. And so I was in, in contact with them and I just reached out to them and I said, I'm ready to go if you guys are. If, if you don't think we're going to get completely roasted for trying to do this and for essentially disobeying a stay-at-home order... I'm willing to do it because I think so many women across the world right now are getting treatments for ovarian cancer and, you know, people with all different types of diseases and and issues are getting their treatments postponed. So when you already have a cancer that has a high recurrence rate, it has a very low survival rate, what sort of message does it send if anything stops me? You don't have a choice when it's cancer. Mm -hmm. Cancer is going to keep going no matter what the pandemic is, no matter what's going on in the world. So I should keep going, was my sort of thinking around it. And A&W said, we're with you. Just go for it. See what happens. And yeah, so throwing it all the pieces together in three weeks was a lot. And definitely not enough time to properly set everything out. Um, But we did it. And uh, I correctly estimated the amount of food I'd need. So Mm -hmm. I finished my last bar on the last day. I I needed a couple extra energy bars, but not too many, thankfully. And then hydration-wise, we were, I think we went through, you know, those like giant, those jugs that go on those water fountains and like offices and stuff. I think we went through four or five of those that just had a pump on it that was sitting in the RV for my water. And it all sort of came together and worked out. We had a bunch of bike and RV technical issues along the way as well, but it's all been just a learning curve and now something that you know, now that I know what we did essentially wrong and I hadn't prepared properly for that time, I'm more prepared to do it. And I think I'm going to try again in a couple of years. I know. I remember when I met Alan a couple of weeks ago and he said at the end of what he was just kind of telling me, I was like, don't tell me too much because I want to have her on the <laughs> podcast. And then when he said, well, I will tell you that she is going to do this again because being the fastest woman isn't enough. She wants <laughs> to be the fastest human. And I was like, oh my gosh. And you had only just come home. So that blew my mind. I have a question about your typical day because as I'm trying to wrap my head around this and like I can tell that you're already planning to do this again in the future. What does a typical day look like on the road biking across Canada as fast as you can? Uh, So let's see. So I would wake up at 3 a.m. or as close to 3 a.m. as possible. I only really got two to three hours of sleep every night. And um, it was really hard to wake up because I was just having these very intense dreams and like sleep was just the second I closed my eyes if I sat down I was dreaming which was a very very strange experience so each day I would wake up my alarm would start going off and I'd be in the middle of a dream and you know my alarm would sort of mix in with my dream so I'd be dreaming and then there would be a loud noise and I had just kept having a, a dream that we were in a battle for something I was like, I don't want to go fight. And then I'd wake up and finally about half an hour later, I'd actually get out of bed. What a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my body was like, we are fighting something right now. 
Like, this is happening. Totally. So I would sort of drag my ass out of bed, wake Alan up, and start making coffee, have, you know, what was I eating for breakfast? I was eating a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So I would shove a peanut butter and jelly sandwich down my face, have a coffee, and then get on the bike and start going. The first few hours was a lot of sort of stopping because in the morning it's really cold and then it gets boiling hot throughout the day. So you're getting out there in like three layers and you're just gradually taking them off and stopping and throwing them into the RV. And so the first, yeah, first few hours was just a lot of getting settled into what I could wear for the rest of the day. Yeah. And then just, just sitting on a bike for hours on end. I would try to stop every 25 to 30 kilometers and that would be sort of to to refuel and that's approximately the amount of time that I should be going through two water bottles and going through quite a few of my snacks Mm -hmm. so that's sort of a really important time window so that you're not carrying too much on the bike because you know you have weight to think about I want to do this quickly so I can't really be carrying too much um so having those breaks and those regular meeting spots were was really really important um yeah, and then just just making sure every time I could, every time I thought about it, I was eating. And then anytime I was stopped, I needed to slam a Red Bull or close my eyes for a minute and just try to make up for the lack of sleep because it was by by Manitoba I was falling asleep on the bike. And that got really, really scary mm-hmm. because I would close my eyes and it was just, it was so warm and I was so comfortable and the lines on the road just lull you into this trance where it's just this repetitive, Mm -hmm. very sort of like meditation like state. And then all of a sudden you're asleep. And I would start sort of having these like awake dreams while that was happening and just realize that I wasn't actually focused on what I was doing. And then I would wake up on the shoulder. Thankfully, I always went to the right into the gravel and I didn't go into traffic. But as soon as that started happening, we had to sort of recalibrate what our plans were and and figure out how I could, you know, get a little bit of shut eye or aggressively abuse caffeine for the rest of the day yeah. just so I didn't fall asleep again. Intervenous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Essentially, I just needed a Starbucks drip into my arm. But it was, yeah, that was that was pretty terrifying. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this kind of two-part question just popped into my brain. Part one, pre-recording, you and I were talking about the importance of really good headphones that you can still hear traffic. So my first part of this question was, what or did you listen to anything on the way? Music, podcasts, audiobooks, anything like that? Yes. Uh, So a lot of podcasts, podcasts and audiobooks I would listen to, but I found that I could do that as long as I was awake. And like first thing in the morning when I'd had a lot of coffee or I'd had a Red Bull or something like that, then I could listen to an audiobook or or a podcast and, and listen to people speaking. But it ended up just getting, it was very calming. Mm. And so I ended up having to switch to music when I was trying to stay awake. And right. I mean, thankfully I was the only cyclist on the road and, you know, it's just a bunch of cars so they can't hear me. So I would sing to stay awake because oh. I'd be like, okay, I need to think about the lyrics. I need to think about and then say them out loud and just try to make sure that I was, you know, engaging as much in my brain as possible so that I didn't just pass out on the bike. So that worked really, really yeah, well. Yeah, totally. And then just sort of shifting positions a lot and talking out loud to myself. I did whatever I possibly could. But for a lot of time I had, yeah, I had music on and then I was singing to myself to make sure I was I love away. that. <laughs> okay, so part B to this question is... What did you mentally 
emotionally, spiritually, physically work through on the bike on this journey? So emotionally, I would say, I mean, by the time you're, I was on day three, I think I'd had a maximum of like nine hours of sleep, maybe. The night before we left, I slept for maybe an hour. And that was awful. That's an awful place to start from, right? Like night before I leave, I should be sleeping for 10 to 12, at least Mm -hmm. getting up really refreshed and ready to go. But I was just so jacked up and so nervous that I just could not fall asleep for the life of me. And so by that point, I I kept telling Alan and, uh, and Dizzy, who was the other guy who was the videographer that came with us. I just kept saying, I have the emotional and mental maturity of a toddler right now. If anything goes wrong, if you say something to me, like I'm just going to start crying or I'm I, like, I will not be able to comprehend it because it was just, you're just so, your brain is just moving through molasses essentially. And you know, all the hiccups that we had, all the issues that sort of came up, I think it was in, I think Saskatchewan was the first time I set out and I was maybe an hour and a half into riding and I realized that the RV hadn't passed me and it was maybe like 10 or 11 in the morning and I was biking and I was like that's weird it's weird that I haven't seen them I should see them really soon I'm running low on water I'm running low on food and so I started calling and they weren't answering and they had fallen asleep and so I got 100 kilometers ahead I'd had two water bottles on me and like maybe a handful of snacks I was prepared to ride 25 maybe 30 And I had to go a hundred until I got to a gas station to fuel up again. And so that happened. There were, I think the falling asleep thing happened two or three times. And then there were also times when the RV battery died. So they had to wait for a tow truck to come. They had to wait for a jump that happened a few times as well. And having that happen after planning this and wanting to do this for over two years, it was just, it felt like I was, like I was holding sand or trying to hold water in my hands. And it was like this dream and this goal that I had was just slipping through my fingers. And it was like every single time that happened, it was just more things that were just falling through my fingertips and then just trying to hold on to it and just like, okay, I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to try and get as far as I possibly can. And that got me. I, there was, a lot, there was a lot of crying on the bike. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was really, really tough just dealing with that. I, I mean, I set out with the intention of setting a Guinness world record. So I set out trying to do this in 15 days. So by the time we got to, I believe Ontario, we'd had so many setbacks and so many issues leading up to that, that that was essentially the halfway point across Canada. And we were already on day 11. And it was like, I'm not, I can't do the rest of this in three or four days. And I've been getting these messages from people that were so amazing and so supportive and just, you're my hero. One guy sent me in like a voice note from his daughter telling me that I was his biggest inspiration and her hero. And she thinks I'm superwoman. And, and I just had this sinking feeling that I had just let everybody in my life down because I was like, I've talked this big game. I've, you know, I said, I'm going to do it in 15 days and setting out, I'm going to do this and doing this for ovarian cancer. And all I could think about was I'm letting down all of the women with ovarian cancer. I'm letting down everybody who has supported me. I've let it, I'm letting down Alan. I'm letting down Dizzy. I'm letting down a I'm letting down all of these people. And just the weight of that, I just felt, I felt like a failure. And I told that to Alan and I was like, I'm failing. I have failed this. I'm, and it was just, it was the worst feeling I have ever had. 
of mentally thinking that and then being like, I still have however long until I'm going to be able to finish this. And then I have to go home and I have to look these people in the eye and tell them that I didn't follow through on what I had promised. And that fucked me up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then it was, it wasn't until I think it was the morning of the 16th day. I sent an email to the marketing team with A&W who, who I was in contact with going up to this. And I just said, I, I am so sorry. I'm emailing you. I am so down. I am so sorry. I have let you down. I have failed what I set out to do. And they emailed back and they, one of the guys just went, we were going to support you no matter what. Like, we didn't care that you were trying to set a Guinness World Record. Like, we're just <laughs> proud that you're doing this. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? Keep going. It's fine. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Okay. I feel so much better. Because yeah. I was just going through, like, I need to pay them their money back. Like, I did not do this. <laughs> like, Exhaustion playing with your brain. Oh yeah. And, and, you know, I got to the end of it and, and realized, you know, I'm considering all of the things that we went through doing that in 19 days or 20 days or whatever is, is pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, it is. But being in the middle of it and just going like, you know, there was a man who did it in 13 days and six hours. And I can't believe I didn't beat that. Like just, you know, you're, you're so caught up. And I had 15 days so locked in my brain that just, yeah, the emotional distress of not doing it, it really, really messed with me. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I would say emotionally, the, that was probably the hardest, the definite hardest part that I had to deal with was realizing that, that I wasn't going to do it in the time that I had sort of planned on. And then physically, thankfully, most things worked out pretty well. I was, I was really surprised. I mean, you know, any cyclist will tell you riding in wind or riding when it's, when there are really high winds is really, really difficult. You're essentially, you know, you're Sisyphus, you're pushing that boulder up the mountain, just to have it roll back down. It's, it's just a, you cannot win. You're fighting against something that is invisible. You're on a flat and you're like, I should be going really fucking fast right now. I should be going 25 to 30 kilometers an hour. And I'm now going 18. Mm -hmm. And when you add that up over the the time span that you're doing of, you know, I'm trying to do 400 kilometers or three to 400 in a day, and you have something that's just holding you back that much and you're down that speed, it really, really messes you up and really mentally is a challenge because, you know, you're fighting this, this invisible force that's stopping you from, from doing what you know you're capable of. You're looking at a flat road and you're like, yeah. I can beast over this. I'm great at this. And that first sort of hit in, um, in Saskatchewan. And I was like, this is supposed to be the flatlands. I'm supposed to be able to make up my time mm-hmm. that I lost sort of crawling up those mountains in BC and be able to really gun it on this part. But that's where all the winds mm-hmm. came in and they were going directly at my face instead of the other way. So that was really, really challenging because I think it was probably 25 to 30 kilometers an hour on one day. And then as we went into Manitoba, there was this one section that must have been 35 to 40 kilometers an hour. It was insane. And you're just pushing against that going like I was on a slope going downhill. And if I wasn't pedaling as fast as I could, I was not moving. And it was just like, what is going on? It feels like Canada is against me. But yeah, physically, like that was the most exhausting, I would say. And then really, really high heat in Quebec made it pretty hard mm. through through some portions of it because it was 33, 34 degrees one day. And, you know, you're sweating and then the sweat is drying on you as soon as 
as soon as it's on there. So you're not cooling down as, as well as you should be. So I was just dumping water bottles over my head as much as I could. And then my hands locked up on me. So I think that was in, um, started in around Calgary. And I noticed that my hands were getting really, really swollen. And I thought it was probably just the heat. But then, I don't know if you can see it, but they can't straighten. Yeah, your knuckles. Yeah. Oh, so wow. that's as straight as I can put my hand right now. And both of my hands, I can't properly move. Like my thumbs yeah. only. Yeah. Ah, so they sort, of, they sort of look like chimpanzee hands. Like if you watch a chimp pick things up and move things around, I sort of have the dexterity of a chimpanzee right now. Do they hurt? They don't hurt. They're just completely numb. So I can't feel pretty much anything on my pinky finger. Um, so what happened is, as I'm riding, you know, you, you put a lot of pressure on the heels of your hand. And in the middle of your wrist and going up through the, the base of your hand, that's where the major nerve is. So I compress that nerve. It's similar to like carpal tunnel syndrome. And that compression just cuts off all the, the nerves to your fingers and sort of because you're locked in a handlebar position, my hands just sort of got locked like that. The muscles had contracted. And so now I'm going to spend the next few months trying to get them to release so I can type properly again and use my hands. But currently I can't do up or undo uh, buttons. So I've been wearing like elastic pants and skirts a lot. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, opening doors was really hard for a little while. Thankfully that's sort of come back, but it's going to be it's going to be a long time before I can properly move but uh other than one other I fell in uh Quebec. So I was going over these train tracks as I entered Quebec and uh there was a big gap. It was there were the worst train tracks I've ever seen. I've never seen train tracks like this before. I've ridden over hundreds of them at this point. And there must have been about a 6-inch sort of dip. You know how there's that like there's a metal rail and then there's that hole afterwards. Maybe not six inches, I'm exaggerating, but maybe three or four. Definitely larger of a space than I'm used to. And my tire went in and turned, went directly into that. And I must have been going 20 kilometers an hour at this point. So it sandwiched my front wheel into it and then slammed me on the ground. Ooh. So I skidded across pavement. I scratched up my arm and my leg and my hip, and then I cracked my head. And so that was... Thankfully, nothing serious, but it messed my bike up. And so the derailers that keep your chain on the gears properly were just all bent out of whack. And my seat broke as well, which I didn't realize until a few days later when I was super uncomfortable. But that was mostly, mostly all the physical stuff was not as serious as it really could have been, considering how much I was doing to my body and, and just how much stress yeah. and, and pressure everything was under. I'm coming out of it with, with some messed up hands is, is pretty good yeah. all in all to say. Did you have an extra bike with you just in case? So we were originally planning on bringing a triathlon bike as well, just so I'd have, cause triathlon bikes are set up. So you have like those elbow rests. Mm. So then that way I could have sort of another way to, to place my arms and sort of switch back and forth. So I wasn't always locked in one position, but unfortunately part of the Guinness rules or that you can only use one bike. Okay. So I was originally trying to set the Guinness World Record, which is why I was like, let's just not bring it. It's not worth trying to stash another bike on an, in an RV that's already tight for space. But it would have made a lot of difference having another one. I wish that that was allowed. That would have made things a lot easier to just 
you know, if anything's wrong on one bike, you just throw the other one at the person, take the other one on, fix that when you have a sec, and then you can keep going. Mm. But I mean, we had, it took 20 days. I would say we had 15 to 20 flats on my bike. It was just nonstop. It was the most frustrating thing. So Alan is now a registered bike mechanic. <laughs> exactly. It's funny. We actually went to this uh, reckless bike shops just at the end of Davy. He had given us, he loaned us a wheel and a bunch of other parts. He was incredibly helpful. Paul, the owner down there. And we went down and uh, we were talking to him and it was just like, both of us need to take some bike mechanic lessons just so that, you know, should the problem with the derailleur with the chain and everything happen again, then I can at least fix it. Cause those things we'd only ever watched YouTube videos for because there was a pandemic going on and we, MEC usually holds uh, sort of bike lessons where you can learn how to repair your bike. But because of the pandemic, we were stuck with YouTube and hands-on is a lot different than watching someone on YouTube just go, and then you turn the screw five times and it's fixed. And you're like, okay, sure. But I'm on the side of a road and my bike is upside down right now. And this doesn't look like what I'm dealing mm -hmm. with. So yeah, we've, uh, we're going to be signing up as volunteer bike mechanics for, for, you know, a few months or so to get, make sure we know what we're doing for the next time. Cause that was the other thing was sitting on the side of the road and just looking at it and then watching a YouTube video and being like, I don't think I know what I'm doing. No, no. He did a great job though. He got it mostly working. So it got me to the finish line for sure. That it makes me wonder, because I, I mean, you guys have been together for a few years, have you not? Six, seven years? Uh, I think six. Yeah. Six going on seven, or I'm always wrong. So you've you've had some challenges. You've obviously been through grief together. You've ridden that wave. To do something like this, I can imagine, was a completely different kind of stress on your relationship. Yeah. I mean, a little. I mean, you've met Alan, mm -hmm. so you'll understand what I'm saying. I mean, he's just... He's the nicest person in the world. He is so understanding. He's so calm, which balances out my crazy, which is really good because there was a few times, it was, I think it was after the second time they'd fallen asleep and we got into Manitoba and I was talking to them and I was like, you know what? I just, I can't rely on you guys. And I freaked out. I was like, you know, we're trying to do this. We're trying to do this for ovarian cancer. This is so important. I can't believe you're letting me down. And you know, they, they took it really, really well. <laughs> and that's pretty surprising. I think you did such a good thing though, too. It sounds like you're super emotionally aware because when you were even able to articulate that you had the emotional capacity of a toddler, do you know what I mean? With exhaustion, even yeah. before you were leaving, like in the, the lack of sleep that you were having, they already knew number one, what you were doing. Yeah. Number two, how exhausted you were because they were sleeping around the same time as you were and they were not driving a bike across Canada. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> they were driving an yeah. RV. So two good people supporting you and thank goodness you had that team with you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, thank God I was so out of it and emotional and just, just not myself. And Alan was able to just, you know, listen and be there and still be super supportive and don't worry you're gonna do it it's gonna be great no one's mad at you no even if you don't do it in 15 days we're still gonna finish it's okay and I'm just like I don't think you understand I'm losing everything everyone's gonna hate me and he's just it's okay don't worry so yeah it, it takes a special kind of person to be able to watch you completely lose your shit and and still 
be there and be so amazing and so nice and supportive and just, okay, whatever you need. Like he stayed up all night one night so that he could wake me up in time because I was having such a hard time getting out of bed near the end of it. And I was like, I need to sleep, but I need to be on my bike by 3 a.m., which means I need to be up by 2 so that I can have coffee and have some food and get ready before I get on the bike. And I was like, I just can't trust myself to wake up in two hours and you sleep through your alarm all the time. So what the fuck are we going to do? And he just went, I'll just stay awake. It's fine. And so he just sat, I think he was sitting on the roof of the RV for a little bit. And then he was sitting in the driver's seat, just straight up, just moving his head around and making sure he didn't pass out. And, and then Amazing. he came back and woke me up at 2 a.m. And then Went to bed. <laughs> he kept driving and it was just like, oh my God, <laughs> nobody's safe here. <laughs> I love knowing that you had a videographer because there's got to be some really awesome footage of all of this and just what you guys were up against. Yeah. Yeah. He has some really great shots. So it'll be nice to sort of put everything together and, and be able to look at all of it and relive all of it. Just be so embarrassed about how emotional I am. <laughs> well, you know what though? How human is that? Right. Yeah. Plus I, I, I can imagine, and I'm only just kind of maybe wrongfully assuming here, but I can imagine though that as you're on your bike and you're going through all of this, what a journey. You're probably still riding waves of grief on your bike driving across the country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it was probably closer to the end that I was really, that I was thinking a lot about Katrina and I was like, you know, close to losing my mind and hallucinating and talking to her and, and just processing it a lot more, but just, just thinking about you know, the grander scheme of things, because because all the things that I was getting caught up in were all very self-centered, right? They're all very me. This is so hard on me. I am so tired. I am going through all of this. My body is so exhausted. I am in pain. You know, it's hard to break out of that. So it would be having to recenter every day, having to remind myself that it's like, no, this is not where you're doing it for. Like, you need to break out of that. You need to break that out of your head. And and trying to bring myself back to the grander scheme of what I was doing it for, mm -hmm. which was raising this money and raising awareness. And, you know, we were being really successful with that and seeing all the funds fundraising that were, was coming in. And when you sign up for one of those donation pages, you get emails and people donate. So I would open my phone and I'd be in the middle of a province somewhere on the side of a highway with a flat tire, feeling frustrated and angry, and then open my phone and get to see that people were donating. And so that really helped balance me and push it forward and remind me that, you know, calm down. This is not about you. This is not about your ego or a plaque that says your name. And like, you know, here's a Guinness world record for it. Like if that doesn't happen, that's fine. That's not what this is about really at the end of the day, doing this was so people would pay attention and pay attention to the cause that I was raising money for. Mm. But because it was just, it was such a weird dichotomy of trying to focus on, on doing that for a grander cause, but then also being so caught up in what's going on day to day and in your head and in your body and, and just trying to separate those two and really focus on the grander goal. I wish I could say that I was a more evolved person <laughs> that was able to just think about the, the grand scheme of things and the, the goal and raising the money. But yeah, no, it, uh, it, it broke me a few times and, and it really took sort of recentering myself and reminding myself over and over and over again, like, nope, this is not what it's about. Nope, this is not what it's about. But yeah, it was, uh, it was a challenge for sure to stay on focus with that. And, you know, just, just thinking about the women, cause I mean, just being connected in this community of women with ovarian cancer, 
you know, on social media, you, you start getting to know a lot of women around the world. I mean, I've gotten to know the, the woman who rode across Canada. She went from Vancouver to Montreal last year, uh, Cecile, with ovarian cancer. She has ovarian cancer and rode from Vancouver to Montreal. There's a woman, Lisa, who I've been in contact with in the UK. There's a woman in New Zealand that I know. And it's like thinking about all of them and thinking about these women who are going through this was, it's another stage of processing everything and getting to know these women who are still alive and still fighting and like, and seeing my sister and all of them. And just thinking of like, these are the people I'm doing it for. These are the people I need to think about and stop being so fucking selfish and thinking about myself in this and like, just remember to focus on those people that I'm doing it for rather than me being tired or hungry or whatever Mm. not doing it as fast as I would have liked to like boohoo keep going it's fine no I think this entire story is incredible and there's so many layers to it I appreciate you and your time so so much and I want to make sure that we grab your socials and so that anyone listening knows where that they can find you, know where they can support you online, know where they can follow the journey, even your next ride when you drive across <laughs> and you make the record, um, and also where people can support ovarian cancer. Yes. So my socials are all Bianca underscore Hayes underscore. So that's on Instagram and Twitter and then just Bianca Hayes on Facebook. And all the donation pages are through BiancaHayes.com. You'll get a tax receipt as well. So if you were signed up for CERB and you were laid off, if you make a donation, you can help balance off what you have to pay in taxes next year. There we go. And then if you don't feel like going through the page, so my donation page is set up through Ovarian Cancer Canada, uh, but funds will be split between their organization and the BC Cancer Foundation's OVCARE research team. If you'd like to just donate to them directly, if you'd like to give them a huge donation or learn more about it, there is Ovarian Cancer Canada, which is the Canadian charity here. If you're not in Canada, there's also World Ovarian Cancer. There's a bunch of other charities that I would be happy to connect people with if you want to DM me, depending on the country that you're in, and I can share those with you. And the BC Cancer Foundation, the OVCARE research team there, they are doing all of the groundbreaking research that has come out about ovarian cancer has actually come from the BC Cancer Foundation. So they're amazing. They're incredibly forward-thinking And they have a lot of very, very big goals. Uh, So donating to them directly is huge. Or you can do it through through my page and help me support them too. Mm -hmm. Bianca, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Bianca, thank you so, so much for your time and for sharing your stories with us. I am so incredibly honored to have had you share your stories and experiences with us in such a raw and vulnerable way. To everyone listening... I recognize the privilege that comes with my platform, and I am committed to creating a safe, brave, and inclusive space with intention. Please check out BiancaHayes.com and the other links mentioned at the end of the podcast, which are also linked in these notes. Every little bit helps. If this episode has hit you right in the heart or inspired you in any way, which I am sure it has, please screenshot the screen while you're listening, send it to your friends, and share it in your Instagram stories. Please be sure to tag us so that we can personally thank you for it. If you're able to write a review or leave a juicy five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, even better. For more great podcasts, check out FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com. And I will talk to you next week.